Hello, welcome back to the Waffle Press Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today is Sam V. Heron. That's correct, right? The V? Uh, it's Van. Van? Sam Van Heron. Okay. Sam Van Heron. I'll make it seamless in editing. Cool. No. <laughs> uh, welcome to Let's Talk About Movies, the show where I bring on a guest and we talk about a movie. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the history of the movie, uh, your history with the movie, Sam, and a little bit about ourselves, because we've been Twitter friends for a little while, we've written together, you've edited stuff for me, uh, you are a great guy, a great personality, and oh, well. one of the best people on the internet, so please tell me a little bit about yourself. Why, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Excited to be here. Uh, so I am the assistant editor uh, at Talk Film Society. Uh, a website that you write for on occasion, and we're glad to have you there. Thank you. Uh, glad to be there. And, and I occasionally write there, but mostly editing. Uh, and the big thing I've been doing lately is hosting and creating the Keanu Believe It. Uh, it's a podcast over at Talk Film Society, part of our amazing network filled with great podcasts uh, where I follow the films of Keanu Reeves. Uh, you were kind enough to appear on an interesting movie, Chain Reaction, which I think, funny that we're talking about a Michael Mann movie because Michael Mann could have made that into something interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I just tweeted earlier, why haven't Keanu and Michael Mann worked together? Why hasn't this happened? It, it would be too good, that's why. It, there's just no way. Just I, the coolness would uh, just destroy everything, I think. It's just... Yeah, I, I think the closest we get to that is like, the John Wick movies, because there's some right. kind of Michael Mannisms in in that character's life, I think. For sure. So I'm very excited. I tweeted a few weeks ago kind of saying, like, Living Through Cable and Collateral came on. Obviously, I was going to uh, watch it a little bit. Uh, it was in the wrong aspect ratio, of course, so I went and <laughs> turned on my my copy of it. But And I kind of tweeted saying, anyone who wants to talk about Collateral, please invite me onto your podcast. And so I'm glad to be here. You know, if you just listened to me, we'd be all bogged down in traffic right now, and you would have made yourself an extra five bucks. Yeah, well, you keep that five bucks, buy you something special. Thanks, Max. <laughs> hey, come on. I'll take it. Yeah, I, I'm very happy to have you on here for the first time. Uh, your your official uh, Waffle Press introduction. Uh, and Keanu Believe It was also a blast. Everyone go check out that episode. Because Chain Reaction is not good, but there are moments that are just awesome. <laughs> if, uh, intentionally and otherwise. Right. Uh, but we're here to talk about Collateral, which is a um, 2004 film directed by Michael Mann. Starring Tom Cruise and uh, Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett Smith for a little bit, and also Mark Ruffalo. And for those hardcore uh, film fans, you'll notice Peter Berg in a supporting role because he used to do supporting roles every once in a while. Right, and Javier Bardem in one scene. Which yes, we'll talk about. <laughs> which which is which is great and awesome. Um, and Peter Berg, of course, would later go on to do uh, propaganda films starring Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, kind, kind, sadly, of, kind of a downturn uh, for him. Bring back whatever. Rundown. Thank you. Okay. 
Yeah, the rundown is great. The rundown is are the movies he should be making, but whatever. Uh, Collateral is is so far outside of his directorial wheelhouse. Uh, like I, he would never make a movie this good. I'm I'm sorry, sir. Um, so this is on the trail end of Michael Mann basically spending the '90s doing nothing but like broad epics. You know, like mm-hmm. three hour long films about. Uh, well, he did Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider. And Ali with Will Smith, like that was the film right before this. And all of those films are like two and a half hours long. Uh, they're really broad canvases with lots of characters and places mm-hmm. and people and about very broad uh, romantic themes of identity and, and their places in the world. Right. And Collateral, in a weird way, fits right into that because all Michael Mann movies are basically about the same things. Just mm-hmm. uh, like with different approaches and and style and right and uh, different you know different maybe they're doing different jobs like you know it's obviously very different in terms of uh you know a mountain man in last of the weekends to uh thieves and cops in uh heat but yeah it's always uh similar themes just using different uh settings and but he's great at it so you know Oh yeah, he, he's he's the, he's the best man. He's he yeah. I think he's like one of the great American filmmakers. Oh for sure, honestly. And uh, Collateral is is an odd duck in his filmography, not because it's any less good. I think it's like a top five situation for him, maybe top three. I don't know. Maybe maybe the best one. It, it's a lot of his movies are up for debate. I think. But, well, um, and it's one of the only you know one of the few that he didn't write. So it's the that is another you know another reason why it's an odd duck, but. Yes, that that's a good point. Uh, it was written by Stuart Beatty, who is a very odd screenwriter. He's written such things as, uh, well, he did an uncredited rewrite on Punisher Warzone, which is a great movie. Um, and then he, the last thing I believe he did was I, Frankenstein. He wrote and directed that, hmm. which is just like... I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually seen that entire movie, but uh, uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you're missing out. If I'm being honest. <laughs> um, but it does have the greatest Spanish language poster in the history of cinema because I in Spanish is just yo. So the, the, the title is Yo Frankenstein. Right. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah, and he co- obviously co-wrote uh, the first Pirates film uh, with Terry Rossio and Ted El- I think he was what? I think he wasn't... He didn't get a screenplay credit, but he was like one of the... Uh, many people that they had uh, developing it. Oh, okay. I I missed that. That's very cool. Um, all right, Sam. So your history with this movie. When did you first watch it? Your history with Michael Mann. Can you get a little bit into that? Sure. Uh, so I don't remember exactly how old I was when I first saw this, but I think it was my second Michael Mann film. Like I had seen uh, Less Than Mohicans was a favorite uh Growing up, even if I maybe saw it a little, I think I remember the first time I saw that, I was like in fifth grade, like our, we had a history teacher that was pretty cool who uh, showed us some of that movie, but I think he like, I went to a private school, so he like cut out some of the more violent scenes, but then, uh. Uh, but then I saw it later on and like, you know, I watched it a lot and then, but it was like, that was like before I even know who my, knew who Michael Mann was really. Like I, uh, I mean, cause most of his movies are, Again, like they were R-rated and, you know, coming out when I was, you know, in the, you know, in the 90s and stuff. So it's, uh, 
but I so Collateral was one of the first I saw and immediately hooked me. Uh, I, I've always been a Tom Cruise fan, so obviously seeing him play against Type was great. Uh, and yeah, I mean I I'm in love. I've fallen in love with Michael Mann over the last uh, probably ten years. You know, since I started seriously actually studying film instead of just watching movies and actually paying attention to the process and you know being interested in the craft of it and he was one of the ones that I started uh really wanting to know more about uh so I you know watched Heat and Thief right next to each other for the first time and was properly you know blown away by those uh so he's become easily one of my favorite directors uh there's I'm not we won't get into Black Hat it's not I I don't dislike that movie I'm, I'm but I'm also not one of the people that's you know, a champion of it, but that's the only film of his that I can't 100% throw my weight behind. Okay, okay. Well, we'll leave that to the side <laughs> for now. But yeah, I think he's definitely one of the best. He Manhunter was one of the last ones I saw, and, you know, holy shit, that movie. Yeah. Uh, but it, I'm actually glad I saw that later, because I feel like I wouldn't have fully appreciated it if I hadn't been more read into Man, like if I wasn't accustomed to his style or just knowing why he's so great at what he does or just being like if i had seen that as a teenager i don't think i would have appreciated it fully um and yeah you know i think you bring up an interesting point in that there is almost kind of like an order of michael mann like you kind of you don't need to but i think a lot of people kind of get put off by some of his more abstract stuff Mm -hmm. and uh like black hat i would argue is a pretty abstract film at times uh, yeah, especially and, and how that's, it uses like digital. Yeah, I mean, and I, I won't again. I won't get too too into it, but like that's a movie that I appreciated more than I just. I think I need to watch it again. That's that's. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But like, it do, definitely doing some very interesting things, and like, it's one of those movies that it was slightly underwhelming the first time I saw it. But that's just maybe because of uh, wasn't what I was expecting, or it's just. But I, again, I gotta give props to Michael Mann for swinging for it. So as he always does. Yeah, and that that order of of Michael Mann, like this is a piece I've been brewing like in my brain for like years now, and I just have no idea how to crack it. Like, what is the order of films you should watch to like ease into him? Because th- mm-hmm. there's definitely stuff more accessible. Like I I think Heat is like generally the one people are like that's one of the greatest movies ever made. All the other ones, honestly. Uh, with a few exceptions, might kind of be up in the air, just given, like, how general audiences react to them outside of, like, film Twitter, you know? But, like, generally right. speaking, if you bring up Heat, like, oh, yeah, the movie with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, that one's great. But, like, everything else, like, if, if you're, if I can't bring a black hat in, like, casual converse. I can bring it up with you and, like, maybe five other people from Twitter. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I totally know what you mean, yeah. I mean, for the most part, and even, like, Miami Vice, I remember seeing that for the first time and not really getting it, like, and then I rewatched, again, after I uh, delved into his filmography, even after I saw The Keep for the first time, but, like, I saw, so I, when I revisited Miami Vice, I'm like, yeah, I get it, it's it's a great one. Yeah, it, it, there's something about the way his movies are, like, textured, he's very interested in, obviously, people, like, doing their, their, their due jobs and diligence and, like, the worlds that they find themselves in. And so yeah. he's a director I'm really drawn to because of, like, how he he builds, like, from the ground up and, like, 
the worlds, obviously, most of them take place in our reality. Like, all of them take place in our reality, more or less. But they feel lived in. Like, they, they've existed before the camera started rolling. And they're going to exist long after the cameras end. And it's yeah. very rare to find movies like that. Uh, not just, like, uh, nowadays, but, like, in any time period, I think. You know, it, it's hard to, to manufacture that sort of fictional world. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, him and, it's funny that, like, like you said, he's, like, one of the best at getting into a world, doesn't matter what the world is, whether it's cops, whether it's, uh, you know, journalism, like The Insider, and, you know, you know, and all that stuff, and, uh, or it's uh, gangsters, and pub- both public enemies, to heat, to uh, cops, and like I said, and, or hackers in Black Hat, like, he's just great at getting you into that world, and, uh, it's funny that, uh, like Martin Scorsese is also a great one. Is one of the all-time people at that. And it's funny that they uh, that he produced uh, the Aviator. So he's all over the place in terms of so many of his movies are some of my all-time favorites. Like it's it's amazing. A big thing with Michael Mann is obviously like that that neon lit night. It almost is otherworldly because like during the day it's kind of hard to capture like. Yeah, like uh, some sort of like reflection of the sky, you know, like it, it, it's too open. So he kind of people are almost like lost during the day in his films. But at night, that's like where they're home. That's where they do their best work. It, it's uh, it almost adds like a tunnel vision for the film to follow through. So naturally, collateral takes place almost entirely at night. Well, think about it. I mean, the world, the world, it becomes the, the world becomes a lot more thematic because the sky, instead of being, instead of being, instead of the, still my landscape that, I'm, that my characters are moving through, being something flat that got laid down on the planet Earth with the whole of the open sky, you know, it's like you're in a room suddenly. There's a lid on everything. So then the city becomes less of a flat plane, then it becomes like a three-dimensional machine that you're moving through. And and uh, kind of like a rat inside of a three-dimensional machine. That was the metaphor about thief, and that's why I shot as much at night time as I could, so that you felt that Frank was like this. He moved through the city as if the city was a three-dimensional construction, not something, not a layer on a on a flat on, on a flat ground. And um, you know, and it's much more atmospheric. You know, it's, it's moodier. You know, it's, and I can take the mood and shape it to be one thing or another thing. It's. It's, uh, you know, take uh, Koreatown and a neon in Koreatown and those lights, and it becomes this uh, transcendental kind of a, the experience where you're moving through a foreign culture to a disco where they're playing Ready, Steady, Go in Korean, you know. And um, I just find that fascinating. It's islands of people who are totally dedicated to doing the thing that they're doing, which have nothing to do with our characters, except our characters wind up in there, you know. That's what's unique about it. It's kind of uniquely, uniquely L.A. Right. I mean, yeah, like, I think, like, the first scene, it's, like, it's sunset. Like, it's basically, like, we, we realize that this movie is just going to be one long-ass night in L.A., and it's uh, wonderful. And, but yeah, uh, back to Thief, or just, a, like, Thief, uh, I I honestly, I don't think I, there's a better movie at night than Thief. Like, I think, just, I don't think night has ever looked better than in that movie. I mean, holy shit, that movie. Yeah, I, I have to agree there, that... If you want a movie with atmosphere that's like drenched in it, watch Thief because the first ten minutes alone, like you're just you're in that world, man, and you could like you could smell the pavement almost, like the wet pavement, the, yeah. the glistening lights reflecting off the hoods of the cars, like that's peak Michael Mann right there. 
and there's like barely, there's like no dialogue. It's just all these guys doing their work, and it's yeah, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, and uh, Collateral opens up obviously with uh, Tom Cruise coming out at an airport, and this is a fun note for both of the movies that take place in L.A. that Michael Mann directed, both Heat and Collateral. They open and close at way stations. Uh, mm-hmm. Heat opens at the train, closes at the airport. Collateral opens at the airport and closes on the train. Just kind of interesting. Yeah, it's for sure, and it's. I love that the, I uh, like the uh, noises of LAX over the, uh, you know, studio logos is great. Uh, and I always forget that Jason Statham is in this movie. Oh yeah, as the for, transporter. Yeah, for literally thirty seconds. Uh, <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe playing the transporter is it yeah, the same character. <laughs> there's no like way to disprove that at this point. So I love I love that. Uh, and we, we get a glimpse of uh, the worlds that, that both uh, Tom Cruise is Vincent and, and Jamie Foxx is Max inhabit. Tom Cruise mm-hmm. is at home in the hustle and bustle of society, just making his way through it. Uh, it it's his comfort zone because he could just slip in and out. And then where Max is like kind of has to shut it all out. And so the sounds almost get overwhelming at a certain point. And then he closes the cab door and it's just silent. We have the, the little bit of the soundtrack. It's it's so great. It tells us everything we need to know about how those characters perceive the world. We don't know exactly everything about these characters yet, and nor do we find out everything. We, we know as much as we need to. Yeah. Because, again, this takes place over the course of, like, 10 hours, which is not a lot of time, but whatever. It's It, it's, it tells the story it needs to for a film like this. But, yeah, I mean, and you, you pick up more details, even just in their great performances in every time you watch it like i just i watched it twice in the last two days preparing for this and i'm like just picking up new things about the new depth of uh i mean obviously these are two great actors but just them coming to get that you just learn even if it's not uh you know a fact even if it's more of just a an i you know a, a motivation or just a a mood of them is just you get more and more the more you watch it yeah and I guess I should also describe a little bit about the plot because on this show I don't I don't spend too much time going over the plot as much. We go I, I'll we'll go into it as much as we need to as well. But um, Collateral is about a cab driver who picks up a hitman for the longest night of both of their lives, and with a, a synopsis like that, that movie could go one of two ways. Um, <laughs> right. It's either gonna be like a direct-to-DVD John Travolta-type movie, or it's going to be a Michael Mann thriller. Which it almost was. I mean, it was almost a, like when the the writer uh, pitched it, it was going to be like an HBO uh, movie, and but like HBO passed on it, which is good for us and good for everyone because, uh, I mean, HBO's made some good movies, but this is needed to be what it is. And it's so thank God that it didn't become just a blip that no, that like, hey, remember that uh, movie in the late '90s on HBO? Nope. Okay, let's go. Yeah, we we got what we wanted. <laughs> yeah, and um, this is it's an incredible uh, feat for for a movie like this to to be so well structured mm-hmm. to be because uh, it doesn't feel like a minor blip on even Michael Mann's filmography. You know, like along with Heat, uh, Collateral, I think is maybe the most popular film. Like in For terms sure. of like general uh, awareness, I mean, my, Miami Vice should have been, but I think that was a little too ahead of its time. 
Yeah, it was, and that was just lost. And I think people were just expecting, like, well, because of every uh, that was that was around the time when they were remaking, turning a lot of uh, '80s and '90s shows into movies. Like, it was kind of people almost thought it was going to be like a like SWAT, like you know that kind of movie. Where it's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, just, uh, and it was not at all what people were expecting. And also, just I think it came out in the summer too, so it was like just kind of got lost in the shuffle which is a shame but definitely seek that out again if you uh haven't seen it or it's been a while yeah uh the theatrical cut i think is the easier one to to get people into it mm-hmm. the director's cut's kind of further reading from Mammy vice but I, I, you brought up a good point people thought it was gonna be like swat maybe or like those kind of movies i enjoy but admittedly kind of low rent little action movies yeah. you know nothing mm-hmm. nothing particularly outstanding and michael mann has i think has a reception as like an action filmmaker and there's, like, action in a lot of his movies. But I don't think I'd qualify him as that. I mean, because of, because of, I mean, the, whenever there is action, it's amazing. But, like, yeah, the majority of it's just humans interacting and talking. And, you know, these uh, extended shots of cities and, uh, you know, lots of shadows. And it's just, he does, he's more interested in... But then, yeah, again, when the action's in there, it's incredible. But... Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to describe exactly what kind of director he is, besides saying that he's Michael Mann. Yeah, that, that's that's very true. I I argue he's he's a very romantic filmmaker. All mm-hmm. of his films are are usually about people that are very lonely because of the world and the jobs that they do, and the places they find themselves in. Like, I mean, Collateral <laughs> is kind of a a perfect like nexus of um of like Michael Mann stories because you kind of you find everything he's interested in but in like a in a very shorter like smaller time frame and like compass yeah Uh, it's 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 just a really concentrated uh and it's obvious again it it makes sense why it's the most popular because it's i mean it's got tom cruise it's got jamie fox two likable actors and it's again it's efficient it's uh not the, the the time the length of it is approachable for average audiences so uh yeah for sure it it makes sense to me why it's the most popular yeah and from the character standpoint um vincent uh tom cruise's hitman character is someone who who feels that he understands how the world works he's a nihilist he's a cynic uh well because he's a hitman so he kind of has to be i guess well yeah but you can look at it's interesting if you look at like the evolution of man's career like uh, you could see, uh, you know, in Thief that, like, uh, my, you know, James Conn's character is very, I mean, yeah, he's an anti-hero, I guess, but at the same time, he's, it's his look, his outlook on the world that he can throw away his family just to, you know, uh, in a second to uh, continue his work, that, like, you could see that that's, um, but it's, it's a little bit, I don't want to say glorified, but at that time, it was kind of like, maybe a bit of an aspirational look at him. But in this, yeah, Vincent's kind of, you could see him as that character, but it's more uh, critical of that worldview in this movie. Oh, yeah, very much so. He's, he, uh, it's not until the end of the film where that character really gains that self-awareness. Like, he thinks he knows it all, but right. he gains that self-awareness of like, oh, yeah, like, at the end, he is like, he, he has no one. You know, the only, the people he's closest to are the people he tries to kill. Right. And that's that's sad in its own way. You know, he's very much a murderer, and the movie doesn't, like, glorify him. 
Uh, and Tom Cruise is badass, but there's, there's a difference between like the actor and the character and that. And then Jamie Foxx's Max character is a dude who's like very complacent and is like, oh yeah, I have all these dreams and goals, but they're not. He's not proactive. And so these two characters meeting is such a perfect like. It's like a, a writer's wet dream. Like I gotta imagine that Stuart Beatty just had like the time of his life coming up with that. Oh man, because yeah. you couldn't find characters from like further opposite ends of the spectrum. Having them meet, collide, and work for two hours together. Oh my god. Like, that dude. Clearly, we went over his resume earlier. Maybe the unluckiest guy in Hollywood to go from collateral to I. Frankenstein. Right. But as long as. This is like his get out of jail free card forever. Like, he wrote collateral. Okay. I'll give him a chance. Let's see. Yeah, I'll I'll give him $200 million. (laughs) Hell yeah, I would if I was a billionaire. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy so i was you know uh that adam sandler was almost the cab driver uh was almost played max in this movie and honestly i could see that i mean when adam sandler is connected to something he can do great but i honestly can't imagine just it seems perfect that jamie fox was the uh, ended up in that care in that character and but it's almost funny that like but yeah i could see adam sandler as a schlubby uh guy in a hoodie driving a cab in la but uh would have been a very different film Oh, totally. Uh, that was that the because I think there was a an earlier draft. It was like Chicago or New York, right? Uh, that sounds right. Okay. Um, Do you remember who else was supposed to play Vincent? Uh, originally, it was going to be Russell Crowe. That's so great. <laughs> it was going to be Russell Crowe and Adam Sandler. I, I I'm glad this is the movie we got, but I want to see a version of that, <laughs> like a look into an alternate reality. Just just because I'm so curious. About what that even looks like, you know? Yeah, and uh, yeah, at first, like, Mimi Leader almost directed it, and then almost uh, Janice Kaminsky almost directed it. So, you know, the Whoa. Uh, that would have been also interesting. Uh, but yeah, and then, but, like, it was one of those things where they were both attached, uh, but then they couldn't get a cat, they couldn't get an actor, and then uh, Crow came on, and then Crow's actually the one who brought Man on, so. Oh, nice. <laughs> did man then kick him off or did he was no he like... just it was scheduling it, it took too long for the studio to start making it uh oh, that's so he bad. just left yeah no. i don't know what, i'm trying to think of what movie he would have left to do but uh around that time but then yeah and then uh sandler was gonna do it but then he had to drop out because of spanglish so ah <laughs> uh, well that's okay i <laughs> I really want to see Jamie, uh, excuse me, Adam Sandler in a Michael Mann movie now. In the same one that Keanu <laughs> will eventually have to be in as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, that would be, but yeah, just the, the idea of that, those two, is just so fascinating. Like, yeah, again, like you said, I love this version. I wouldn't change it, but at the same time, it's going to be one of those what ifs that will always haunt me. Yeah. And because, like, you know, Adam Sandler has a reputation for making movies that him and his friends just hang out on. And, you know, like, you know, I don't like them. Not many people do, but someone's making money and they're having a good time. But, <laughs> like, contrast that with, like, Michael Mann's approach to filmmaking where he sleeps, like, two hours a night. He's on the treadmill by five in the morning calling <laughs> up, like, his actors be like, all right, well, here's a schedule for today. Like, here's what I'm like, thinking, you know? <laughs> it's just, right. Like, what, what would that do to Adam Sandler's, like, life? <laughs> Like, that might actually kill him. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, because it's, I mean, yeah, one of his best, you know, obviously, like, Punch Drunk Love, but, like, PTA is not that kind of, like, he's 
a great. He's one of the greats, but like very different in terms of uh, uh, process and everything. So yeah, uh, it would have been a very different world, I think, if uh, Sandler had not passed on this. But yeah, or maybe not. Maybe he still would be making these horrible movies uh, with his friends. <laughs> Well, I mean, not to spend too long on that, but like, you know, I remember Funny People. Everyone thought like, oh, he's he's got the self-awareness. Funny People was 10 years ago now. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe nothing would have changed, but who knows? Who knows? But um, yes, back to the movie that we did get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about this era of Michael Mann is where he first starts veering into digital filmmaking. So the mm-hmm. daytime sequence for like the first five minutes of the film were shot on film on celluloid. Uh, I think maybe the opening shot of Tom Cruise with the, like that heavy grain and noise might be digital, but it feels like it, but yeah, it's hard to, hard to really tell when he, in these movies when he's uh, using both uh, yeah. film and digital, but, and then uh, he was able to capture something that uh, I think he fell in love with it. Like on Ali when he was doing the, the fight sequences and uh, the, the early running, of Ali uh, and early montage. Like he, he shot that like on those crummy little digital cameras mm-hmm. and he caught this texture that he was fascinated by and like this immediacy and uh, a digital can capture something at night and around sunset that film cameras just can't. I'm sorry, Sean Baker. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and so Michael Mann's basically been utilizing that as his toolbox for the last two decades now. And collateral is like the grand experiment, like in play, like, and uh, I believe they they really had no idea, like, going into this how it would turn out. Like, this could have been his biggest disaster since the keep, right? Like his only other disaster besides the keep, basically. And for and it it, it came out beautifully. The the images, uh, it, it, it honestly it doesn't look very quote unquote cinematic in the traditional sense. But collateral is not trying to be a movie about. That cinematic wonder, you know, it looks the complete opposite of Heat, where Heat is like a through and through movie, like blow that thing up on like a 70 millimeter presentation and you're in the fucking theater. Collateral mm-hmm. is all about that, that direct immediacy, the um, the tangible world that these characters find themselves in. And it's it, it's a grand experiment. And it's uh, I actually don't have it on Blu-ray. I only have a DVD because I'm I'm poor. <laughs> but it, it still looks stunning in that in that quality. Uh, I also remember Michael Mann was uh, a little unhappy with the presentation initially, mm-hmm. but now digital projection has like caught up to the right. point where he's like, okay, now it's now it's good to go. I wish it came out like that over a decade ago, but that's okay. But I would very much like to see a version of this that like that that new 4K heat, which is just holy shit that never looked. I mean, obviously, I can't say it's never looked better because I wasn't. I was four when it came out, but still, that that movie is uh, that ver. So I would very much like to see a 4K version of this. I don't know if we'll ever get it, but oh, DreamWorks, yeah. please make it happen. No, please, because in 4K, like I think it, it was shot the digital like um, intermediary at that time was only capable of producing like 2K images. Yeah, and so I wonder how that would translate. Yeah, it would be I would be interesting, but. Uh, yeah, and so the uh, one crazy thing is that the uh, so like one of the probably the most famous scene of this movie or famous shot of this movie of the the coyotes, which again we'll probably talk about more as we go on, but yeah, only was 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 an accident, like was not planned at all. Like they were filming the movie and then 
the coyotes showed up and they're like, because of these little light cameras that we're using, these digital cameras, we can actually get them without setting up the shot. And that's insane to me that that what, because of how, because of how uh, much that works with the theme of the film, uh, it's wild to me how the movie almost wouldn't, I don't know if it would work as well without that shot. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. It's like, uh, if with that knowledge, like if you go back and like, I guess if you really try to like look for stuff, you can kind of tell it's like a quick, like, um, like grab and shoot kind of situation. But that also, it, it goes with the scene just because it's a fleeting moment, you know, like what, that's, that's a perfect whirlwind of events to get in, into that, like that act of the film, that final act of the film. And the uh, the whole the whole like, idea between these these characters Max and Vincent like how they they really are outlier or they feel like outliers you know one recognizes it more than another and then eventually Vincent recognizes it in himself it's uh, it goes back to like the man's filmmaking of being about essentially really lonely people trying to just connect a little bit you know because coyotes like that's kind yeah. of their not to get too National Geographic, but they're, you know... No, uh, no, please, please do. You know, they're like scavenger, loner animals that they... And, you know, they... Because they're, they're usually living in, you know, the same area as wolves. And so sometimes they'll just, like... Wolves will kill something and then the coyotes will take their scraps. And so if you look at that, they're like... And there's two coyotes that show up in this shot. And so if you look at that, like... That both Max and Vincent are essentially similar that they're like you said they're isolated they're uh maybe working towards something we don't really get that with vincent exactly but like he he said that he's been doing it for six years so meaning that like it's, it's not like he's been a career assassin it's like this is a kind of a again they're both maybe doing temporary things and this isn't necessarily we don't get this through exposition we get it more through uh the just these glances and so this moment where uh, Vincent and Max both see these coyotes and they react to it completely different. It's all silent. Like they're not, they don't say anything. They don't look at each other, but you can just see in their faces that they're just taking different reactions from this weird thing that's happening to them. And uh, you can kind of see that they, you can definitely see Vincent ha- seeing some uh, similarities to him and the coyote. And uh, it's fascinating. I could talk about it for a while, but. No, no, it's totally fine. I mean, even the way Vincent's dressed and the way the coyotes look, like the color mm-hmm. of the of the fur, it you know, it's like it's too perfect of a parallel. Like, if you wrote that someone you probably get a note back being like, Look, man, this is a little on the nose. But it happened <laughs> like in real life. So it's great, yeah. I mean it's clearly like, meant it's like to the be shot there. of Yeah, it's like the shot of the rat in the departed. Like it's like but it was ac- yeah, a complete accident, but uh and even earlier in the movie when uh, Max says, like, how he explains uh, the damage to his car to the cops, like, he says, a deer, like, I hit a deer in uh, in uh, in South Central, and, like, a South Central deer, yeah. But then the uh, then they see the coyotes, which, do, you know, coyotes do end up uh, in cities, it, it does happen, so, but yeah, it's just kind of a, again, it's just a perfect... Uh, it's almost like a line in the, you know, uh, fate's intertwined, cosmic coincidence. Like, that's, oh man, it's too perfect. I got five stops to make. What's your name? Max. Max. I'm Vincent. I'll meet you in the alley behind the building. 
killed him. Red light, Max. Hold on, hold on. Man, you were gonna drive me around tonight and never be the wiser, but we're in the plan B. Now, we gotta make the best of it. Improvise, adapt to the environment. Whatever, man, we gotta roll with it. You just met him once and you kill him like that? But I should only kill people after I get to know them? I'm not up for this. <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? And I wanna give a quick shout out also to Michael Manns. He educates himself so much in, in research for his films and productions. And even for a film that he didn't write, I, I think he did like one draft maybe towards the end or whatever, but um, he, I'm pretty sure he also had knowledge from like doing heat and stuff. But he really understands the geography of L.A. and understands how people constantly try to avoid traffic and people will memorize <laughs> like routes and which routes to take because that is exactly how we talk. Well, yeah, it's like that. It reminds me of that, uh, you know, the SNL sketch where they're always talking about get on the 105 and, you know, go on, like, it's yeah. Great. And uh, Slauson is huge. Slauson turns into another street and it's still technically <laughs> the same street. It is like a 20-mile street. If you don't believe me, just use Google. Um, I may or may not live close to it. I can say that because even if there's a weirdo following me, you don't know where in Slauson I am um, because it's so fucking huge. But even even so, <laughs> given where they are in the film, it's yeah. hilarious that the cops like may or may not buy that they hit a deer in South Central. But also, it's like L.A. has... It, Anything could happen in L.A. That's, like, the least weird thing I've heard about L.A., so... Well, and even, like, yeah, even uh, Annie and Max, Jada Pickett-Smith and uh, Max have this conversation, like, they make a bet of who knows the streets of L.A. better, and it's... uh, Yeah, it's just one of those details that, again, just comes to Michael Mann quickly, you know, just knows how to uh, set, you know, set up those uh, details, and it's... Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And uh, I love how the the L.A. skyline is consistently just, like, hovering over everything. Because L.A., you know, big, sprawling. Vincent really nails it. Like, it's huge, but it's also kind of kind of closeted at times. And then uh, it feels smaller than maybe it is. And then you're like, oh, no, it's L.A. is, is fucking gigantic. Um, it, it's kind of hard to tell where the suburbs turn into the city and the city turns into the suburbs. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been to L.A. a couple times, and, uh, like, just my first time there, I remember, uh, like, I took a Amtrak from San Diego to L.A., and then got on the subway, took me to downtown L.A., got on a bus, took me where I was needed to go, and so it was, like, it was funny, that, and I had been there before and driven through a lot of it, so I knew how big it was, but then at that time, it felt, all of a sudden, felt smaller. It's, uh, again, I don't live there, but that brief uh, idea of it just felt made it felt feel weird for sure. Yeah, and uh, it's very good that they they did it this movie at night because if mm-hmm. they had to take the buses during the day, uh, <laughs> nothing would get done. The buses in LA are awful; <laughs> they're they're the worst. Yeah, I just had to go in a straight line, so that's probably yeah. But uh, oh, you're, I, you're lucky. <laughs> you you'd be surprised the problems that could still persist <laughs> from that completely out of your control. Just... But like you said, the, the way he shoots LA is just amazing. Like. I love how in early in the film it's a little it's, he shoots it romantically like it's very you know it's almost like making love to the city with his camera like that's how good he's making it like LA is amazing at night like look how gorgeous this looks and then later it starts to feel more as it as Max goes further into the uh, 
uh, chaos, it starts feeling more dangerous and mysterious. And it's really interesting how, but then even later, and then later in the film, it, you know, it's beautiful again. So it's really fascinating. I think there's a there's a major narrative shift because Vincent is trying to be like nicer to Max, like just to get him on his side, you know, because he understands that now this guy is going to be with him the rest of the night because he needs him to like you know take the fall from at the at, at the end of it. That right, um, which is something he, he, I picked he, up this time uh, around, like just how casually they just in a quick one line between Ruffalo and Peter Berg that like basically or uh, Ruffalo's like. Do you remember that time, uh, that story where a cabbie killed three people and then killed himself? Like, so clearly Vincent's done this before. Uh, so that's something I didn't pick up until recently. So yeah, and like, what a fucking asshole! I mean, that's like <laughs> crazy smart, I guess. But what an asshole! And <laughs> um, but there's that a shot in the film after they they visit Max's mom at the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, and he's running away with the briefcase. The film completely takes like a tighter narrative turn. Uh, it's basically a through line all the way to the finale at that mm-hmm. point almost um, where they're running from the hospital and they run through that gated bridge over the freeway. Right. And that's like a perfect encapsulation of Max's journey through the movie where he's stuck in this place that there, there's no one else. It's just him and Vincent and he can see the rest of the city. The rest of the city could probably see him, but there's nothing anyone can do about it. He's just stuck on that path until he gets to the end of it, and he hopes there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that is such a great sequence. Uh, and it's, oh my god, this everything in this movie is so perfectly like structured and like attuned to the story that they're telling. Uh, it, is, it is, quite frankly, unfair for other movies to take place over the course of one night in L.A. Because they'll be like, is it as good as Collateral? Probably yeah. not. And that's no one's fault. I mean, <laughs> it literally Michael shows Mann's. like... Yeah, and it shows almost every part of L.A. Almost. Like, it shows, like, the... Like, they go to... Uh, they first, they go to a... Like, a... Like, the first nightclub they go to is a very... Is, like, a... Like, a Chicano-type place. Like, you know, the... The place where he meets Felix is a very different-feeling nightclub than the one they go to later. And... Uh, but, yeah, like, he's just... Uh, again, it shows, like, every little aspect of uh, L.A. Except maybe, like, you know, the rich people. But, like, still, it's really... Uh, it's really, like you said, it's unfair to probably, you can set a movie in LA, maybe, but definitely don't do it over one night. Yeah, like, it, it won't be collateral, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but that's that's also something I really love about the movie, is that it really uh, showcases the roots of LA. It just like, it'll, it'll spend like seconds just like showing us these murals um, in, in, in residential areas, by gas stations, by food markets, just little little things that show the world during the day and then how it looks at night and how uh, what was once like open and like everyone's kind of going about turns into something very lonely and reflective and a little scary when you got a murderous Tom Cruise by your side. Right. Otherwise, I think I still think it looks great, but you know, yeah. Tom Cruise is trying to kill you. You're, you're basically going to die. Right. Uh, especially this cat. I mean, Vincent, uh, like, there's... I could spend uh, just an hour talking about the way he uh, pulls out his gun, like, in this movie. Like, he... Just how, like, uh, good he is at it. Like, he just throws his uh, suit away and, you know, pulls his gun. And it, there's just something about the way Tom Cruise points his gun in this movie that, like, uh, stuck in my brain when I first saw it. And I always... I always have to rewind it to watch it multiple times just of how... 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's just the coolest gun draw I've seen in a modern film. Yeah, like, there's a reason why Tom Cruise is one of the biggest stars, like, on the planet is because he commits. And so, like, for him to team up with Michael Mann is kind of perfect because they both work so hard to get, like, the best possible end results of, like, their vision together, you know? And uh, apparently Tom would, like, do, like, days on days, hours after hours of practice for this, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, they would never have to cut around any of his shooting sequences. They would just shoot, like, straight through because they didn't need to cover anything. He was able to just hit his marks, like, boom, 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 and not miss a beat. And, I mean, it's Tom Cruise, so, you know, of course. <laughs> right. The dude just jumped out of, like, uh, planes on the fifth Mission Impossible well, yeah, he out of fucking, helicopters. Fucking learned how to fly a helicopter uh, and do, like, get enough hours to be certified to then start doing stunts in a helicopter in like a course of a year man is insane yeah yeah so um i kind of wish he would do more movies like this now though yeah because he kind of he, he's sticking the mission impossible stuff uh jack reacher not, not is not gonna happen anymore uh the mummy was out of his control that was a disaster from day one that was not his fault sorry tom um but you know he he, he teamed up with like stanley kubrick and and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and Michael Mann in the early two thousands. Like I, I'd like to see more of this again. Yeah, I would. Be, I mean, uh, American Made kind of had a little taste of that, but like, yeah, I'd like to see him work with another Matt. Like, uh, I mean, I would love to see him work with even just work with Mann or Spielberg again. Like, just something. Uh, stuff like I mean, I love what he's doing right now. But like you said, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to see him. Uh, maybe he'll start doing that when he's eventually unable to jump out of helicopters but uh we'll see yeah i i hope this isn't what happens but i'm convinced that he's going to die trying to entertain us oh like i'm very concerned for the future but right now i'm enjoying it (laughs) just how interesting vincent as a character like how again i mean there are some great there's some great lines in this obviously like uh stuff he says about you know being a nihilist and all this stuff and uh, being a survival of the fittest, and but like some of the best stuff is just the, it's just the looks he gives, the, uh, the way he kills people, how like how he can be really charming in one moment, and then he'll just be straight up the Terminator in the next, and it's, uh, or even just his clothes, like I someone I saw, uh, the great, uh, probably the great uh, man academic of film Twitter, uh, Priscilla Page pointed out that. He's dressed the same way as he wears the same suit that Macaulay wears in Heat. And so you could almost see, like, ah. yeah, he's literally wearing the same slate gray white shirt that Macaulay wears in one scene in Heat. So is he saying something there? I have to feel like it's intentional. but I, I, I think he is. I, I think they're both uh, men of duty on the outside of the law. Mm-hmm. And they have a very... They think they have a broad understanding of the world, and maybe in some sense they do, but they have a narrow field of vision for what they want to do and who they are. Right. And they, they don't really have attachments. You know, I mean, that slated grace is very monotone, and you could slip in and out of places without people ever recognizing you again. Um, and he's gray from head to toe in this movie, which, which is a really cool look for Tom Cruise. And uh, I, I do think that he's saying something like, this, this is a dude who who's who's on the outskirts he's 
that that coyote again so such a perfect symbol of of this character mm-hmm. just moving through places maybe he doesn't belong and but people wouldn't pay second attention to if they were anybody else besides Max and Vincent in that moment in time and then there's even moments where it feels like he's maybe like uh lost in this like it's never he never says anything that makes you think that he doesn't believe this worldview and doesn't uh, think that the world is nothing and that nothing matters and uh, but then there's moments where he looks at just like there's a like in the nightclub scene uh, the nightclub shootout right before the shootout happens he just kind of looks at Max like maybe he doesn't want to do this like maybe he hates himself a little bit wants to get out of it but it just doesn't know how uh, it's almost like he envies uh, that Max even though he's a similar like that he envies the optimism that Max has, even if it's maybe uh, naive in some way, it's still like he envies that. And it's again, it's nothing dialogue. It's all just the way Cruz uh, inhabits that character and makes gives vulnerability in just a glance. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, and it's such great um, like development of these characters and how they their conflict and their meeting pushes them into entirely different spectrums. So uh, Max becomes more proactive by the end of the film, you know, taking action, taking charge, and having to survive. You know, he doesn't have a choice. He's either that or die. And then where Vincent is literally thrown off balance at one point, like in that final chase when they're they're running each other down uh, in, in the finale, you know, Max is, is you know, obviously scared, but he's he's there to, to save Jada Pinkett Smith and... How he's moving through the building is is through a man of action, no longer mm-hmm. fear, or at least he's not showing it anymore. Which is, of course, its own uh, achievement. But Vincent is like, you know, he's sloppier there. He's still doing. He's still the most deadly man on the planet. <laughs> I'm sure at this point in this universe. But like, yeah, but, you know, he's sliding just, around. He, well, he's like, falling over chairs. Yeah, he trips over a chair, and but then also like, yeah, it, up until this point, he was very cool and collected, no matter what was happening. But then now he's like both stumbling over things, but then also like. Uh, he's like act like being angry in his in his actions. Like before, it was just like, no, I gotta kill this dude because he's in my way of my target. But now it's just like, no, I'm gonna jump on this train while it's speeding away and uh, somehow open the door and like that. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he just there's a break in him and it's man, crew like just uh, crew's playing a bad guy is just it was. Uh, I bet people at the time were a little like, is that going to work? But then, of course, it's going to work. Like, the dude uh, is going to commit, and it's just, yeah, that, uh, the swap in the character, the sudden change in the character is impressive. And, of, of course, the, the final moment, as we wrap up here, just between these two characters, uh, it's that classic Michael Mann thing. The other two people uh, from opposite ends of a spectrum, uh, the only ones that understand each other, but only at the end of the day, only one of them could and walk away and you know Vincent has that that parable early on in the story about how the guy was on the MTA dies and no one noticed for like six hours because no one in LA pays attention to one another mm-hmm. these two paid attention to each other all night for better and for worse and now Vincent's the one dying on the MTA and Max is the only one that's going to notice for a little while and that is it is so sad and that's so weird <laughs> that, that you could have that sympathy for this this mass murderer. Just, yeah, psychopath who will shoot anyone that gets in his way. Uh, but then, yeah, it's like him dying and 
the and it's just again the beautifully shot like the you know the blue sky and the uh the silhouetted palm trees and as he you know the train goes off into the distance it's i mean yeah that her heart is breaking for the sociopath murderer is is something else yeah it's it's beautiful uh as we wrap up, I, I had this Twitter thread where I was trying to capture um, Michael Mann's use of blues in various movies. And so mm-hmm. I think the through line for me on that is like his his use of, of the blue palette is often found in like solace or resolution. But regardless, a sense of calm, whether or not he's in a nightclub surrounded by Javier Bardem's gangsters, mm-hmm. he has to present himself as calm, you know. Whether it's it's the aftermath of a rough night out in Collateral, also the the blue represents a sense of that that calm finality. You know, now the night's over. You know, like now we can we can breathe easy. And I think it's really fascinating how he's used that. And my and Manhunter, he uses it spectacularly. If you haven't seen that, uh, go watch Manhunter, and also go check out the episode I did with Matt Garingo on our Hannibal retrospective. But um. That is, there's no better way to end a Michael Mann movie than that no. with the color blue. And uh, I can't think of a better way to end this podcast and your first appearance on The Awful Press. So Sam, Van Haren, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for choosing Collateral. Thank you for letting me talk about Collateral for an hour. It's great. Uh, and we didn't even get to, I mean, again, I think we had a great conversation, but like, uh, just if you're... If you haven't seen Collateral in a while, watch it and then watch the uh, nightclub shootout uh, multiple times in a row, which I did this time. And it's just, man, it's just, I don't think anyone shoots controlled controlled chaos at its finest in that scene. Uh, I think you could study that and always see something new and impressive. But again, thank you for having me. Uh, I love Michael Mann. I love Collateral. It was great to have uh, a chat with one of my favorite people about it so thank you Diego thank you Sam yeah I mean there's so much to talk about with uh, collateral that yeah we could go on for like another hour about the nightclub sequence alone (laughs) Um, controlled chaos is a perfect way of putting it thank you again you are also one of my favorite people why don't you go ahead and let the other people know where they could follow you though Uh, you can follow me on twitter uh, at Sam shot first it's a Star Wars reference Uh, I was 16 when I made it but I still I'm still cool with it Uh, but it's uh, yeah, Sam shot first, and then also follow uh, Talk Film Soch on uh, Twitter as well. Uh, you can find you'll be able to find that in my uh, and can I believe it on Twitter. So that's where you can find my stuff and all the wonderful stuff that we uh, that I'm connected to and proud to be a part of. So uh, yeah, cool. And you can follow me at D E W G O Waffles on Twitter. Like, subscribe to the Waffle Press on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes. Check out the Patreon. We're uploading that, uh, updating that, excuse me. Uh, as we move into the new year, we've got a lot of big plans ahead, a lot of fun stuff. Hopefully we could have Sam on again this year because it was a pleasure having you on. And uh, I don't know how we're going to top this next conver- uh, next conversation uh, outside of Collateral, but I'm, I'm sure we'll figure something out. Uh, again, thank you for joining me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks for watching. If you didn't like this, like, subscribe anyways, because you might find something you do like. So we have been professionally unprofessional. What's going? What's my work? Gotta roll with it. Adapt. Get your hands in the air! That's fun coming from you. Oh, 
Slow down. Shoot me. 